This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm David Hirsch, and when I'm not hosting the Dad-to-Dad podcast for the Special Fathers Network, which is a Dad-to-Dad mentoring program for fathers raising kids with special needs, I'm Stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and man, oh man, do we have an impossible burger of a podcast for you today. Say hello to the woman behind the Wall Street Journal's Secrets of Wealthy Women podcast, Veronica Dagger. And... Is it true that you can't beat the stock market? One recent piece says what you think you know probably isn't correct. Plus, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to a lucky listener and wash this podcast down with my incredible trivia. And now, two guys who spend their spring days grilling very much possible burgers for Joe's mom. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Nothing mom likes more than her burgers possible. Welcome to the middle of the month. I'm Joe Selsi. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And across from me, not just hump day for the week, but also celebrating hump day of the month with me, my friend OG. What's your favorite non-traditional topping on a cheeseburger? I don't do non-traditional toppings. Mushroom and Swiss is like as far as I go. It's like, okay. All right. Yeah. Bacon. You know, bacon doesn't, it's okay. Not yeah. my favorite, but it's okay. How about a uh, over easy egg? Pass. Hard pass. Oh, dude, it's so good. Oh, oh. It's so good. Yuck. Welcome to the Disgusting Burgers That OG Eats podcast. Man, we got a great show today. We got Veronica Dagger here from the Wall Street Journal. How about that? Okay. She's, Finally, somebody that can keep us on our toes. I know, right? Veronica has a fantastic podcast, The Secrets of Wealthy Women. We're going to talk about some of those. Whether you're a woman or a man, you're going to like these secrets. They are uh, some fantastic stuff. You just listen to one episode and man, you've got it. But we've got her for a preview here today. We got some great headlines. We also got Magnify Money OG supporting us today. Thanks to Magnify Money. And thanks to you if you used our link when you went to magnifymoney.com using stackingbenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. What you found when you went there is that those brick and mortar products that your bank has, not best in class, not even close to best in class. You'll find better savings account, better checking accounts, better options to consolidate your debt. Or if you have no debt, you play the credit card reward game. Better reward offers at stackybedjamins.com forward slash magnified money. Big show today. Veronica Dagger, OG, me, 
Doug. Cheeseburgers. Cheeseburgers. It's all here. Let's get this party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. It was always funny when I was a financial planner talking to money managers and hearing their take on their ability to beat the market. And then the intelligentsia's take of people who aren't money managers. I found this really, really interesting from uh, Brett Aarons. I called him Bruce on Monday. Sorry. Sorry, Brett. You on Monday were Bruce. Okay. Just got to change your name for one day. That's uh, the, uh, that was the former head coach of the Cardinals. That, that's exactly why I thought that was it. He pivoted. <laughs> Pivoted first names. Brett says this investors widely held beliefs about ETFs and index funds may be wrong. A new study's just shaken one of the biggest investment myths on Main Street. An analysis of mutual fund stock trades over the past two decades has thrown into question the rationale that has sent everybody and her grandmother stampeding into low cost index funds and exchange traded funds. I can stop right there for a second. For a big part of our audience, them's fighting words, OG. Yeah. I can hear people going, it's not true. Pitchfork time. There is no way that's true. Hold on. There's more. That rationale that even skilled fund managers can't beat the stock market indices. So there's no reason to pay somebody to try. Not true. Right. Finance and accounting professors, Linda Chen at the University of Idaho, Wei Wang of the College of St. Benedict and St. John's University and George Zhang of Washington State University. After an exhaustive study of nearly 2000 U.S. mutual fund stock trades by month from January 98 to March 2015. Instead, their research found substantial evidence that many skilled money managers are adept at picking stocks. Quote, mutual fund trades outperform their benchmark, they wrote, and critically, they're good at picking the stocks that are going to beat earnings expectations ahead of time. Large active trades by mutual funds prior to the month of earnings announcements have significantly positive abnormal returns in the subsequent one, two, and three-month horizons, they wrote. That's true even when you adjust for the major stock market factors such as value, stock size, and price momentum, they wrote. Indeed, when you measured this, they found the top 20% of funds beat the bottom 20% by remarkable 1.27 percentage points a year, and the outperformance is even true when fund managers' fees were taken into account, they added. So, has everybody wondering, if these people are so big at picking, OG, how come they don't? beat the market. The piece asks that same questions. After all, the piece says there have been plenty of evidence that overall fund returns don't on average exceed their benchmarks. A big reason lies in the words active trades. For their analysis, the researchers separated all mutual fund stock trades into two groups. One group consisted of the trades that managers made simply because they had to because of investor money flows into or out of their fund. So example, in a hot market, bunch of people throw money at the Fidelity Contra Fund, let's say. Contra Fund manager isn't allowed by their prospectus to leave that money in cash for a better day. By prospectus, or they get sued, they have to invest that money, as it says in the prospectus. So they make the trade, even though the manager knows it's a stupid time to buy the stock. They have to. And then there's other trades that they make that are based on 
their thoughts around the market. Those are the, those are the active trades. So the second group of stock trades consist of those the managers made simply because they liked or disliked a stock. These so-called active trades have nothing to do with fund flows. Money managers may have had to liquidate other stocks in order to raise the money to double down on their bets and stocks they liked. It was these active trades found the researchers that drove the fund managers outperformance. In other words, mutual fund managers would do a better job. And this OG is the big hurrah. I was eating my Cheerios while I was reading this the first time. And when people say, LOL, I laughed out loud. In other words, mutual fund managers would do a better job if investors would just leave them alone. Isn't that glorious? That's exactly right. They would do better if they left themselves alone too. But the thing with the, uh, you know, that outperformance or whatever, beating the market, that sort of thing. The the problem that people mistake here is they, they kind of get the data incorrect and then that leads to a series of other somewhat faulty assumptions. So, for example, you'll hear people say, you can't beat the market. False. A lot of people do. In some years, it's 40%. Some years, it's 55%. Some years, it's 22%. There are all sorts of people out there who beat, quote-unquote, the market or their benchmark or whatever. But as this piece says, there's also a bunch of people who would beat the market if the system worked differently. (laughs) If they they were able to be left alone, yeah. But the part that we want to focus on is that it costs a lot of money to try to beat the market, to try to outperform. And so where indexing becomes interesting is because it's so inexpensive, you don't have to take that risk. The risk is, you know, you put your money on the wrong horse. You say, well, Bill's done it 17 years in a row, so he must do it the 18th. And that's and that's not true. So indexing takes that risk away, but it also takes away the potential reward, which is the trade-off between that, you know, marginal extra cost. And I don't mean marginal in the sense of not being a lot. I mean, the definition of marginal is just like an extra cost compared to the marginal return. And some years you're correct, some years you're incorrect, some years you're correct 10 times in a row, and then everybody goes, this guy's awesome, and then he's wrong 10 times in a row. So where indexing is interesting is that it takes that information of you can't beat the market, which isn't true, people do. It says you can't beat the market and you can't predict the person who's going to do it in advance. Therefore, we shouldn't have to pay a higher cost for it. So my argument always is, If you could beat the market, you would want to do it, correct? Given the opportunity and given the opportunity to do so at a low cost, why wouldn't you try? Well, that's kind of been taken out of the equation because of the the hammering of of the phrase, you can't do it. Not true. My favorite thing about this article is this whole idea that's been propagated on Main Street of the financial managers are idiots and you shouldn't hand them your money because they're idiots is yeah. not true. What, what really is, and don't get me wrong. There's as many, sure. there's many idiots. Bad as doctors. There, yeah. There's, there's bad accountants, plumbers, you know, yes, you've got idiots in every field, but podcasters, the, the, the problem is that those people, the problem is the dude sitting next to you in the fund is screwing it up. If you have an active fund, active funds, we're still saying guys, Please don't write us because what we're saying is, is not that active funds are great. 
Active funds do stink, but they don't stink because of the manager. This piece says the fund stinks because dude sitting next to you is doing the wrong thing. And the fund manager's got his or her feet to the fire, having to do things they don't want to do. The fund manager, it was funny because I used to have these talks with fund managers. Fund managers would tell me that, hey, I have to stay close to the S&P 500 because in our prospectus, it says that's what we do. So guess yeah. what? It's the end of the quarter. I don't have enough Apple. I better have Apple because everybody's going to look at the prospectus at the end of the quarter or look at the top holdings. And my top holdings better look a lot like everybody else's top holdings or else. I can't buy what I want to buy. I got to buy what this thing says. I got to dress it up. I got to I gotta have these positions that are supposedly popular. Lipstick on the pig. 15,000 reasons why active funds stink. But the one that, that, that I always get tired of hearing is, well, people on Wall Street don't know what they're doing. Some don't. Smart guys over there. Yeah, 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 some don't. I thought that was so cool. Great piece. Thanks for that, uh, uh, Bruce, a.k.a. Brett. (laughs) (laughs) For our second headline, let's skip over from money managers to financial advisors. This is something we haven't talked about in quite a while, and uh, the statistics not looking good, OG. This comes to us from Financial Planning. Dot com is written by Jessica Matthews. Why so many advisors are switching firms? The piece reads in the shortage of advice as the shortage of advisors worsens due to retirement, firms are recruiting new and younger talent, but they may first want to evaluate whether they're keeping their existing advisors satisfied. You joke about money, but it looks like that's not everything. Listen to this. Less than half the advisors we surveyed are happy with their current firm, says Charlie Fallon, vice president of practice management and consulting for Fidelity Clearing and Custody Solutions. Unhappy advisors have proven a willingness to leave. Since the beginning of this year alone, at least 222 advisors managing nearly $47 billion in assets have switched firms, according to recruiting data collected by financial planning. Uh, not keeping newer existing planners happy could be costing firms millions of dollars in assets. Keeping the advisors that you have is less expensive than recruiting new ones, says Falon. Uh, so what keeps an advisor content? The piece says it starts with providing the basics, competitive salary. So you're right, money. Number two, though, technology. Number three, management support. Where you get the higher level of engagement is with teamwork, says Falon, citing Fidelity's recent study on retaining client, which surveyed nearly 500 advisors and employees. Firms that had employees with high engagement experienced 24 to 59% better turnover. Employees want to get to know their peers and be recognized for their work, the study says. They also want to hear how they're doing and what progress they're making. I think a lot of the time people wonder why advisors switch firms, OG. Do, do you agree with that? Or is this a kind of groupthink? Hmm. Well, I think it also depends on what you mean by the phraseology advisor. Do you mean uh, an advisor at an independent firm goes from you know independent firm to another independent firm? Or do they mean the guy from Merrill goes to Morgan Stanley? If it's that, if it's the quote-unquote advisor moving firms in terms of like, I was at Edward Jones and now I'm at Ameriprise. Uh, I think a lot of it is opportunity and opportunity disguised in a couple of different ways. Opportunity for clients. Maybe there's better products or better uh, software, better experience for clients, but then better opportunity for advisors too. I mean, could be just as simple as a signing bonus or better payout rate or nicer office space or 
you know, better platform, an easier way to do business. And sometimes so, it is. Sometimes it is in that case, though. Also, the better management team. Yeah, the people around you. Yeah, it could be all those things. Many of the times that you see, you know, these headlines of you know this advisor moving from one firm to another, it's usually them moving from a captive arrangement, something like a, a, a warehouse. We would call it Merrill or Morgan or something like that, and moving more to a more independent perspective sometimes even out on their own completely where they're going, Hey, I was an employee at Merrill Lynch. Now I'm going to go start my own firm and bring some clients with me. That counts as a, as an exit also. And that brings up a question I want to get to here in a second. But before we do that, this piece continues for younger advisors. It helps a company if they lay out a career plan and mentorship opportunities, according to Patrick Doherty, president of a five person RIA in Texas. So one of these small uh, independent Mm -hmm. firms you're talking about and a college professor for next generation planners. Patrick says we need to come up with a serious and legitimate career path. When they join, we need to keep them interested, train them, offer a decent benefit package. But be careful of overcommitting. The piece continues more than 33% of advisors said their current firm didn't live up to the value it had initially promised. According to Fidelity's shocking people say, Hey, guess what? The grass is way greener over here. Turns out they're uh, shoveling it a little bit. Well, and I wonder how much of it also is expectations on both ends, right? It's as a young planner coming out of school, I want to meet with all the millionaire clients because that's where all the cool stuff happens. And they stick me on the phones to follow up with, you know, insurance paperwork or something like that. You know, I totally remember that though. When I first started, I had an advisor that I sat by in this big training program that I was a part of. And he was Mm -hmm. upset that he didn't get to work with like the firm's top clients. And it was funny. I remember my buddy saying to him, he's like, really? Oh, you're the new guy here. Here's the really important people. (laughs) Here's the relationships that are most important to the company. We're going to hand them to the new guy because the client's going to like that better. And definitely that was hilarious. So I think there's a little bit of that, you know, with the expectations. I think it's very difficult to wear both hats. You know, I, I go through this in my business as well. Being an advisor is one thing that I can do in my sleep like is what I've been doing for two decades, you know, but then the other thing is I also have to like be a leader of advisors. So I have to like, remember that we have to do training, you know, the stuff that I just know in the back of my head, I just know these folks have never heard before. So, you know, when I say something like, oh, well, we're going to do the, you know, the backdoor IRA contribution, we're going to wait 30 days for the statement to post and do the conversion. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, like people on the team look at me and go, yeah, cool. Why? And what the hell are you talking about? Huh? What? You know, yeah. and so you got to really got to recognize that there needs to be training opportunities. If you're if you're an advisor that's bringing on advisors also, you have to restructure your your life basically around that. Which brings up the question, if your advisor is changing firms, everybody goes through this. Is the company more important or is the advisor more important? Like, do I go with the advisor? Do I stick with the company? Well, I think it's really going to be uniquely personal for each person. But but generally speaking, I come down on the side of the relationship. You know, if your advisor is going from Ameriprise to LPL or is going from Merrill to Morgan or is going from, you know, Edward Jones to starting their own firm or whatever, I think your relationship is with that advisor. And 
the products and services now are so uh, uniform throughout the industry that there's really not going to be that profoundly big of a difference between like, oh, well, now I'm at Morgan. So now we get to do this cool stuff that we could never do at that crap hole Merrill. You know, I mean, they're both gigantic trillion dollar firms. They have all the same tools, maybe just a little bit different. So you have to evaluate whether or not you like, you know, you like your advisor team uh, more than anything. You which, know, statements which, are going to be different. And which all is that important sort of from stuff, the beginning, but. which is important from the beginning, by the way. That's exactly my thought is that if you come down on the side of the relationship with Merrill Lynch is more important than with your advisor, I don't think you really had an advisor. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't, th- I don't think you did. If, if, if you feel like the company's more important than the person you didn't, I don't think you had the right person then. Yeah. You got to recognize that from an advisor standpoint, moving firms is a huge, huge deal. It's a huge undertaking. It's very risky, you know, from a career standpoint. Speaking, now, speaking of that, by the way, uh, not to derail this too much, but did you see the news just, I think it was last week, about those two guys that made the move, talking about how risky it is, guys. A lot of people don't realize what OG's talking about, just how risky this completely is. These two guys move from one firm to another firm. Of course, these are the type of deals where you leave at midnight and take the client files with you. You're calling everybody the next day, telling them to come over to the new firm. The old firm sues the advisor. By the way, that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Sues the advisors. But because these two dudes did it wrong, they got fired from the new firm on day two because they didn't dot their I's and cross their T's in terms of coming over. So now they're sued by the first firm. They don't have any place to land with the second firm. Imagine <laughs> imagine yeah. being in their shoes. Holy cow. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of rules that you have to follow if you're going to leave and that sort of thing. But but it's a very risky thing. And it's nothing that that an advisor would take very lightly. It's not like the advisor, you know, wake up on a Tuesday and go, this sucks. What's Merrill doing? And then and then decide by Thursday morning that they're going to move. You know, I mean, this a lot of times you hear the story of people taking six or nine or 12 months to make the transition. So it's with a lot of forethought and a lot of consternation and a lot of sleepless nights that advisors go, yeah, I think I'm going to do this. And I'm pretty sure that I've got a good enough relationship with the vast majority of my clients that when I say I went independent from, you know, this brokerage firm because A, B and C, that a lot of them are going to come with me. Yeah, I think it definitely is about a conversation. Yeah, I think that's the big takeaway. You have to have a conversation with your advisor about what do I get with this move? Yeah. And you have to recognize too, I've, I've, I've been through two of these and one of the comments that I always heard was, well, how come you couldn't tell me? Why didn't, why didn't you tell me this was coming? Why, why did this is a big surprise? That's one of the rules. That is one of the you, rules. You can't tell anybody. You just have to do it. And then, and then you can tell people because uh, the government has a, has a rule called selling away. And so if you, if you go, Hey, uh, six months from now, we're going to move to a different firm. And then as a result of that, you don't do business with your advisor or your advisor goes, well, let's just wait on that until I get to the new place. <laughs> that's 15 to life. No, I'm just kidding. It's not that bad. <laughs> but, but, uh, but that's how you get fired and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, hear them out when, they, uh, when your advisor moves. There's probably a good reason for it. That's takeaway number one. Takeaway number two, I think, going back to the first piece, active investments still bad. But I think now 
As Paul Harvey used to say, you've heard the rest of the story. So speaking of Paul Harvey and the rest of the story, right? I said something like that to Miles, who I work with. And he's like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, like, come on, dude. So we pulled up some clips and we listened to this one. I'm like, here, listen to this one. It was a YouTube video or whatever, just the audio, you know? And and I don't remember what it was, but it was like this whole story. And it's like all about Amelia Earhart or something, you know? And it's like, he's like, oh, wow. I didn't know they were, that's where they were going. And they're like, you know, because you know, yeah. the stories always yeah. started out like, yeah, bored on a farm and used to milking cows. This dairy heiress was... You know, it's like this big, long story. And then we lost her to the sea on today's date in 1847 or whatever. You know, you're like... Amelia Earhart. Oh, wow. Yeah, Yeah, he always hides it behind his back until the very last Very, very, very cool. Surprise. Great storyteller. We're not going to hide this behind our back. Veronica Dagger is upstairs talking to mom. She is the author of the Wall Street Journal's Resilience how 20 ambitious women used obstacles to fuel their success. And if anybody knows how anybody uses obstacles to fuel their success, it's Veronica. She is, of course, the host of Secrets of the Wealthy Women, Wall Street Journal personal finance independence reporter. We're so happy she's finally made it down to the basement. Let's say hello to Veronica Dagger. And coming down the stairs to the basement, the host of the Secrets of Wealthy Women podcast, our new friend, Veronica Dagger. How are you? I'm good. It's great to be here in this basement. It's not as dark as I thought it would be. You don't get a chance to say that much, do you? It's great to no, be here in the basement. It's not the dungeon I expected. Yeah, you, you're welcome, Veronica, by the way. <laughs> you're welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to see your new project called Resilience, How 20 Ambitious Women Used Obstacles to Fuel Their Success. Tell me, how did you, how did this project get started? Yeah, I'm super excited about it. It's our new ebook for the Wall Street Journal. And so, yeah, I host this podcast called Secrets of Wealthy Women, where we interview women about their success and their obstacles that they've encountered. And so we heard from a lot of podcast listeners, they want more of the content. They wanted to hear more of these women's stories. And the women we speak to on Secrets, it's, you know, it's women like Maria Sharapova and Aisha Curry. So women wanted to know like, okay, We've heard some of the podcasts. We want to hear more in detail about how these women overcome obstacles, because the fact is a lot of the listeners wrote to me and they said, hey, you know, we're kind of surprised some of the most successful and famous women in the world have actually faced obstacles. You just see sometimes the social media feeds and you're like, oh, their life is great. It's always been great. And in reality, a lot of these women have had significant challenges. And so The point of the book was to show, hey, you can achieve significant success even after significant challenges in your life. And sometimes you achieve that great success because you face some of these big challenges. I was surprised. And we're going to highlight some of the changes in just a few minutes. And we're going to play some clips from the podcast as well, where some of these, uh, well, you've interviewed all these people. But I want to talk about the sections of the book because I get... All the sections, but the first one, the, the second, the second section of the book is called managing the juggle. I get people and women juggling 
motherhood, a career, a family, but juggling lots of different things in their lives, maybe even taking care of older parents, things like that. Next, surviving despite personal trauma. You've got some fantastic stories there. Overcoming doubt and embracing risk. But the first section is called The Hardest Step. And that's the only one, Veronica, that to me is kind of opaque. What does the hardest step mean? Right. So sometimes the hardest thing to do is just to start, just to take that first action, make that first move, take that first step to move towards your goal. I think sometimes I'm going to generalize here, but I think sometimes women may be more likely to hesitate because they want all the stars to align. They want everything to be perfect. They want to get a hundred on the test and make sure they check off all 10 points of the job description before they say, oh yes, I'm ready to do something or I'm qualified. And sometimes when you are, especially in earlier in your career, that can be amplified, that hesitation. And so we wanted to show the fact that, you know, hey, you can take that first step get over that initial hesitation that you may feel or other people may impose on you and you can succeed. So just take that, just take it one day at a time. Have you found that to be the case in your career? You know what? I think so. I think so. Especially when I was younger, I was a bit more timid about saying what I wanted, what I was thinking, what I, you know, sort of the support that I needed, what my goals were. I I think on some level, yeah, I held myself back because I remember when I started doing video here at the journal, that essentially happened because someone tapped me on the back and said, like, I think you'd be good at this. And I was like to them, I was like, you know what? I have not had any training in video or television. What makes you think I'd be good at it? Like, I'm not qualified. And they're like, you know, just try it. Just do it. And I was like, you know what? I'll trust them on this. I'll try it. And I end up loving doing the sort of multimedia types of things, but I wouldn't have done that unless they had tapped me on the shoulder. And so I think sometimes women need someone to tap them on the shoulder. But I think sometimes if we do a little bit more reflection, we could realize some of these things on our own saying, you know, that would be cool to do. I would like to try that and, and nominate yourself, like advocate for yourself and, don't be afraid of hearing no, because no at first may turn into yes later. Often it does. I remember that even with my career, when uh, when I first started doing local TV here, I was like, are you kidding me? I have a face for radio. There's no way. <laughs> and then once I did it, I totally liked it. So I'm with you. And obviously this is about women, but it's even it was even true for me. You kick off the book talking about or talking to Kate White. And for the few people out there that don't know who Kate White is, who we all think of, by the way, as an incredibly confident person, explain to everybody who she is. Yes, I love Kate White. So she is a longtime editor of Cosmopolitan magazine. She was. She was, at, you know, the editor for over a decade. I'm sure you recognize her. She was often pictured in leopard outfits or, you know, sort of animal striped animal, you know, themed outfits like the leopard prints and the such and very confident, not afraid to talk about things like sex and money and just all about empowering young women. Yet it turns out when she was a young woman, she wasn't always so empowered. Yeah. And and it's amazing. Let's listen to this is from Secrets of Wealthy Women. You talking with Kate White have led countless women to keep striving for success. 
heard you said you felt socially awkward when you were younger and you felt weird about introducing yourself. How did you get more comfortable doing so? I would say it's probably just trial and error. The more you do it, the easier it gets. And I had to kind of force myself to be out in the world to meet people, to give speeches and the like. And eventually you reach that threshold so it's no longer difficult. Right. You found out you were passed over for a major promotion earlier in your career because you were a woman. Tell us about that. Wow. I had been working at this magazine. It was a newspaper supplement, but it was really popular in a lot of newspapers. And my boss left to become the editor of GQ. And I I loved him and I felt bad about his leaving. But he said, Kate, look, you're going to be able to run the magazine while they search for a replacement and you're one of the candidates. So I was really psyched. And after getting over some initial nervousness, I discovered I loved being in charge, loved being the boss, loving having the whole magazine. For me to decide what was going to be the content, I didn't get the job after three months. It went to a guy from the outside from Time magazine. And I just accepted, okay, I was only in my early 30s. But later, my old boss took me out to lunch and he said, look, I I can't ever say this in a court of law, but you had the best proposal apparently and you didn't get the job because you're a woman. That is absolutely – just makes my stomach hurt. I know. Horrible, horrible. But you know what? And what's kind of sad is I think there's still a fair amount of that today, especially in the financial industry, at least from what I hear, that, you know, women are maybe very qualified, but they may not be getting the jobs because they just don't fit what some people think is the typical profile. So, yeah, I mean, I appreciate the honesty that boss gave her, but I also can't imagine how horrible that must have felt for her at that time. But I want to go back to the empowering part of this, Veronica, which was there at the beginning that she's not somebody we all think of Kate, those people that know Kate, uh, think of her as somebody who's always been confident. And yet when you hear her talk, it's more like Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours. She's put herself in the position so many times that it finally started to become natural. And maybe maybe that's the takeaway. Yeah, I think that's a huge takeaway. Totally. That, you know, you may not have all the skills you need at the moment. You may not have all the confidence you need at the moment. But in a way, it's a bit of a fake it till you make it. Just keep practicing, keep acquiring the skills that you need. In her case, she took some public speaking classes to develop that so-called executive presence. She networked with a lot of different people, so she would be in those circles of the higher-ups so they would know her name. She did this, took the steps. She figured out the steps she needed to take in order to be seen as a player and then just kept repeating that over and over again. And eventually people took her seriously and saw her as editor-in-chief material, which, she, I mean, she obviously was for so long. And so it's a matter of, sometimes convincing yourself. And like she said, the more you do, the easier it gets. And I've definitely found that to be the case too. The more podcasts I tape, the easier it gets, the more appearances I do. Same thing. It's just a matter of repetition. None of this is brain surgery. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell too many people that. Don't tell people that. It right, is. no, no. <laughs> it's a lot of hard work, but it's not brain surgery. <laughs> that is true. The uh, At the end of each chapter with each of these powerful women, you have some takeaways, and we won't have time to go through all of them, but I want to ask you about two of these. 
at the end of your chapter with Kate, one of her tips is to find a sponsor. Tell me what that's about. Yes. And so a lot of us have mentors in the workplace, but a sponsor is an executive type person who can take your papers into the room. So basically, you know, hear about these meetings where people, you know, the management decides who gets promoted or who gets the biggest raise and having someone who believes in you, who is a higher up, who's willing to basically make your case for you when you're not in the room and say, Hey, you know, Kate should be the editor in chief. Like let's promote her or she should get that next title or she deserves the raise to be the almost like a spokesperson for you. Who's going to say, talk you up to other management types and increase your opportunities and their interest in promoting you and seeing you as a valuable member of the team. So you need someone like that who's going to risk almost their so-called political capital to help advance your career. It's a wonderful thing to have a sponsor and it really helps you take things to the next level. It's funny because I think that a lot of us think we have to be the Lone Ranger, right? We got to do it all by ourselves. And I, I can't count a time when like the inflection points of my career that didn't involve a sponsor, somebody who had the lever that I didn't have to help me move forward. Exactly. Right. And they, you know, chances are they're much higher up than you. And so they see the whole chessboard, they see the big picture. So they know where the opportunities are. They've been around the system longer than you most likely. And so they know how to position things to get the buy-in from other people. And so having that extra voice and that advocate just makes you seem more serious about your career and also makes other people take you more seriously. And so I think that sponsor can really help push you over the finish line. And I think especially in a field like the financial services industry, having someone in that room to advocate for you is super helpful. Absolutely. Let's move up through the book to managing the juggle and somebody who's juggled a lot in her life. I mean, she was an, an actress. She's known for food is uh, uh, Aisha Curry. How did you meet Aisha? She's great. Um, so she came to us because she was launching a new website um, called Homemade, but essentially she was rebranding some of her different products lines under one cohesive website. And she had heard about our show and she really wanted to be a part of it. And we said, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of hers. I thought she would be great. And so she came in and spoke to us about her various, she's got so many business ventures, everything from restaurants to cookware, to the blog, to giving advice to uh, consumers, has her web show. She's done so many things and she's, I think she's just turned 30. She, she's incredible in terms of what she's accomplished in such a short time. And so she was all about talking to us about what she's accomplished in a very humble way, of course, and how she's been able to differentiate herself from her husband. Yeah, she she seems so humble with all the stuff she's done. Let's listen to a little piece of you speaking with Aisha Curry. You're a self-taught chef. Yeah. What's your advice for other women who want to try something new, but they're afraid to because they don't have a formal degree in it? Yeah, that was that was huge for me, being okay with the fact that I wasn't a classically trained chef, didn't go to culinary school. But I, I had people backing me in my corner who told me, that's fine. We move on from that. And we use, you know, the things that we didn't learn as growth. And you just work extra hard and you learn what you need to learn and you'll be fine. And so I say to 
you know, all of the women out there who have a passion and want to do something, that's where, you know, the success will stem from is the passion that gives you drive and don't let anybody tell you no. So just press forward and, and, and work really, really hard work when everyone else is sleeping and things will start to look up. How can it's, women- it's, ama- it's amazing to me, Veronica, that this woman who I know, most, most of the reason I know her is because of her cooking initiatives. And yet, she doesn't have any degree in that area. Like she just pressed forward. She did. She was fearless about it. And that's one thing she stresses, you know, just go for it. Just try it. You know, you can't sit around and wait for permission. And let's face it in this world that we live in with media, so accessible, you can do videos, you can do podcasts all on your own. You don't need to wait and to sit around and have someone tell you, yes, you have permission. It's okay for you to start pursuing your dream. Like her whole point is why not me? Why not just start right now where I am, take it day by day. And you know, it's worked for her. She's become enormously successful. So much of that is hard work, her own perseverance, her own creativity. And so you can't say, I know some people love to say like, Oh, it's only because of Steph, her husband. And you know what? She's like, no, that's yeah. He helped open some doors for me, but she's the one who had to walk through those doors. She's the one who had to do the work to keep it going, to expand it, to have that vision. Great that he's supportive and he can maybe provide a connection or two, but at the end of the day, she's the one who has to hustle to make this business work. Yeah. You look at her trajectory before she was married. I think she would have probably ended up very close to the same place. I really, I believe that as well. I mean, she's incredibly charismatic. She's great on camera. Uh, That work ethic is something that is obvious from the moment you meet her. And she's very committed to empowering and helping other people and using her platform for good. She's a very down-to-earth person who just wants the best for other people, for her family, And also for herself, like her mom was an entrepreneur, still is an entrepreneur for many, many years. And so this is just something that's in Aisha's DNA. I think she would have been a successful, you know, Martha Stewart type regardless, like you said. But a a part of this interview, I think that people would sometimes gloss over or, or, or maybe miss is that because of the fact that, I mean, she pointed out to you that she doesn't have a formal degree in cooking you kind of got to know your Achilles heel so you know where your blind sides are. That's right. You have to know what your weakness is potentially and try to turn them into strengths. And if that's the case, you need to seek out advisors or, uh, you know, a group of people who can help you understand what your blind spots might be. Maybe fill in for you. If you have your own business, fill in for you and find out, um, take responsibility for those areas of the business that maybe you're not so strong in. Uh, Maybe you're a really great marketer, but you're not so great at the financial side of your business. Well, then you hire someone out to do that, or you try to learn as much as you can until you can hire someone out to do that. And so understanding what your weaknesses are, how do you leverage those? And I think some of the smartest people I talk to really focus on their strengths. They focus on what they're good at. They spend their time at what they're good at. And then they farm out the tasks that they don't enjoy or they're not so good at to other people. I love that. Just focus on your unique talent. 
It's exactly. so important. Uh, one of your takeaways from Aisha's chapter is embrace the difference between wants and needs. And she goes into this in a really nice way. Tell me about that. Yeah. So she's great. Obviously she can afford probably pretty much anything right. else she wants. You think you maybe? Know? She's doing pretty good on her own, multimillionaire on her own. Her husband's obviously multimillionaire. They are set for their life, you know, presumably speaking. And so she could conceivably buy anything she wanted online. She could go shopping on Amazon every day and put things in her cart and hit hit buy and go ahead. But, you know, one of the things she does is that she realizes just because she has the money to buy things doesn't mean she should use it to buy a bunch of stuff that she doesn't need. There's no point in spending your money just to say you can spend it. Like, what's the point of that? She doesn't see that as creating a meaningful life. And so instead, you know, although she, you know, she still says she, she likes to shop, but she doesn't want to always indulge that impulse. And she also doesn't want to teach her kids that you can always just have everything instantaneously. And so she'll go online on Amazon or wherever and she'll put things in her shopping cart, but she won't hit buy. She will wait to the next day or the day after, and then she'll see if she still really wants whatever that thing is. And if she doesn't still want it, she won't buy it. So I just think that discipline and that idea of waiting and thinking about the future and not necessarily spending money just because you have it is so smart. And as you know, so often we don't hear that from pro athletes or the families of pro athletes. You know, you hear these stories, especially in places like the NFL, that the guys end up bankrupt, you know, several years after leaving the league. And so just to have the wisdom coming from the sports culture at first to know that you can't just spend everything you make and expect to have a solid financial future. It's so exciting that she does that. I thought that was a great story. Yes. Uh, this is called Resilience, How 20 Ambitious Women Used Obstacles to Fuel Their Success from the Wall Street Journal. And of course, Veronica Dagger, who we're talking to now. Where do we get it, Veronica? How do we get our hands on it? Yeah, so you can get the book if you're a WSJ subscriber, if you go to WSJ.com and you can download it for free. If you're not a subscriber, um, hopefully one day it will be available someplace else. But for now, it's just for the subscribers. But a great way to take advantage of similar content is if you go to the Secrets of Wealthy Women podcast. You can download the Secrets of Wealthy Women podcast for free. Um, you can go to Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Play, WSJ.com, and subscribe and review us there and access that content. We download a new podcast every Tuesday. I know it's it, it's uh, generally a secret who's coming up on the show, but you know, Veronica, <laughs> you, you know for a fact nobody listens to this show. So you, oh, stop. I listen. Your secret's safe with me. Who do you got coming up? Um, so we have coming up next week, Soledad O'Brien. Oh, awesome. Broadcaster. Yeah, we're super excited. She was lovely. She's really smart, super driven. She's got her own production company. And what's exciting about her, not only did we do a podcast with her, we are just starting also a Snapchat and Instagram series based on the podcast. And so she will, in the coming weeks, be appearing on our series there as well. So if you're in Instagram or a Snapchat person, keep an eye on WSJ.com's account. You'll be seeing some of her content on there as well. Snapchat, Instagram, podcast, writing. I wish you had something to do. 
<laughs> yeah, me too. How do you stay busy? Oh gosh. Um, how, yeah, I know. Right. Between that and family stuff yet. Yeah, it's, um, you know how it is. We're, we're all super busy. Veronica Dagger. Thanks for hanging out with us for a few minutes. Thanks for having me, Joe. I appreciate it. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And what is all the hype about an impossible burger? I mean, this is America, isn't it? If my campaign for president is going to be the huge success we all know it's going to be, we can't just focus on great-looking t-shirts and super hilarious joke podcasts. Seriously, listen to it. We must focus on making the impossible possible. Let's be honest. Haven't they really already made this burger? I think that alone makes this impossible burger possible, doesn't it? I mean, we can do anything, people, and I say we can also supersize it. I'd like to see a possible burger in every lunchbox. Throw in some of those apple slices with caramel, too, so we can save the youth. Hey, what if we made the impossible burger, but instead of their main ingredient, we used meat? Would that then be called a possible burger? Hey, well, uh, speaking of that, here's your trivia question. In place of beef... What is the basic component of an Impossible Burger? I'll have your answer right after this. Well, if you're new to the show, you may not know how much we like Magnify Money because not only are they a sponsor, when we answer questions from stackers, we often refer them to Magnify Money because it is an award-winning spot where you can take over 92% of the stuff on the internet and compare it against each other and different than some sites where they will compare and contrast things in a way that suits their pocketbook. Magnify money has four straight criteria, whether they have a relationship with the bank or the credit card or the student loan company, whatever it is, it's all straight ahead at magnify money. Of course you pair that with an award-winning blog led by our friend Mandy Woodruff and you've got everything you could want. Let's do what we've done here a few times. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money and take a look at interest rates on savings accounts. We haven't done this in a little while. All right. So I go to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. It says compare for best offers on and I hover over and it says I can look at balance transfers, cashback reward, credit cards, 0% interest cards, Secured credit cards, debt consolidation loans, auto loans, student loan refinance, parent plus loan refinance, personal loans, checking accounts, savings accounts, CD rates. I click on savings accounts, click on my zip code, and we're all the way up now, guys, to 2.5% U.S. Allied Financial. Now, it gives me a transparency score, which means all that fine print you've got to sign tells me it's an A. Got to put at least $500 in it to get to 25 And it says it's NCUA insured because it's a credit union. Uh, Next is 2.46 Vio Bank. Uh, They get a B, but it's only $100. Rising Bank is next at 2.45. They get a C, $1,000 you got to put in. Then next we've got 2.45, a few at 2.45. Then we go down to 2.4. Man, if you're not getting significantly over 2%, you're really missing out. A lot of brick and mortar bank people still getting in the point somethings, not even 1%. Some familiar names here, uh, 15th down, the 15th best is uh, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. 16th best is uh, Ally Bank online savings account. Barclays at 2.2. American Express 
down just below them at 2.1. Discover 2.1, E-Trade 2.1. So some good stuff there. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. If you go there, you'll see exactly why we like it and recommend it so often to stackers. Welcome back, impossibly dedicated trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Hashtag Doug2020. Before the break, I asked you this trivia question. What is the basic component of an impossible burger? The answer? Well, if you said the seat covers off a 96 Chevy Malibu, you'd be wrong. But if you said soy protein, you'd be right. And if you think it sounds impossible to get soy to taste like a burger, join the crowd. It's about the same size of people who don't believe in my future presidency, but just like the impossible burger, I will prove you wrong there too. Doug for president. Finally, some presidential rhetoric I can get behind. It's about time. It's about cheeseburgers. <laughs> so, so refreshing. Have you tried one of these impossible burgers yet? No, I'm American. <laughs> I, I think you mistook me for somebody who wasn't American. <laughs> <laughs> I, li- I like my meat. I didn't even know what it was until we were talking about it in the uh, pre-production meeting a couple of weeks ago. Because I had heard the phrase and I'm like, I don't know, maybe... Maybe it's just a loaded up cheeseburger with a whole bunch of chili fries on it or something. I don't know. Like, what makes it impossible? Is it eight pounds? Extra like mayo. Big, right? It's a big, like the big steak at Big Tex, you know? Like, right. Where you get, where you get like a bunch of money if you eat the whole thing in the yeah, time I'm limit. Like, I'm game. Is that Burger King? I mean, how many That's of these impossible. things are Yeah, right. Yeah. Hey, let's throw out David. I would never in a million years try that, by the way. <laughs> I wouldn't. Let's throw out the Haven Lifeline OG, and we're going to tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first on your cheeseburgers, which is definitely a fried egg. Oh, not. So you got to try it, man. Just uh, just do me a solid. Try the hangover burger next time. Like, oh, boy. Uh, order two. Order your mushroom and Swiss. And then order the hangover. And if you don't like it, then I'm going to stick with what they have here, which is uh, your loved ones in your time. I oh, think that's okay. much better than the fried egg on the burger, but whatever. You never know. It's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now for a free quote. By the way, something we're working with Haven Life on, on our Facebook page, we're going to have one of their actuaries come on and ahead of time ask our friends for celebrities. And you know how you're never sure, or most people I think are never sure exactly how these actuaries price the policy, you know, determine, determine if you're healthy enough. I had always wondered before I was in the industry, how these life insurance companies would decide if you were healthy or not, like what they really looked at. Mm-hmm. We thought it'd be fun to ask people in our Facebook group for some different celebrities and who are some people that, uh, that you would want to that you want to maybe throw out there and see how actuaries look at them, right? So we're going to be firing that game up here in the next week. That should be that should be pretty fun. And then we're going to have an actuary from Haven Life come on and walk us through, like, uh, you know, old Thor versus new Thor. <laughs> <laughs> what does that do to your life insurance cost? Make sure you have, like, three eggs and a cheeseburger for breakfast right. before your blood draw. Right, Yeah. Yeah, what happens if you throw that fried egg on that Impossible Burger? I don't know. 
but we're going to have some fun with that. So stay tuned for more there. Uh, but for now, go to Haven Life for your free quote. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life gets you there. Let's say hi to our new friend, Matt. Going to throw out the lifeline to him. Say hi, Matt. Hey, Joe and OG. It's Matt from St. Louis. Hope you guys are doing well today. I recently started investing in the equities market about four to five months ago and am looking to continue to diversify my portfolio as OG has alluded to several times. And uh, one of the sectors that I don't have any skin in is actually the uh, pot stocks. I was really interested in seeing what your guys' take is on this industry. Obviously, it's growing at an incredible rate and uh, weed's getting legalized in more and more states each year. So there's definitely some potential for this growth to continue. And um, if you guys are interested in any of this, are there any particular stocks that you've noticed recently? Um, I know a lot of people are talking about canopy growth being a good one. So yeah, I just kind of wanted to see what your guys' take was on this whole industry. And um, maybe I'll learn something. I don't know. The jury's still out on that. Thanks for the question, Matt. Let's talk about the cannabis industry, OG. What do you think about that as an investment opportunity? Well, I've got a ticker symbol. It's H-E-L-L space (laughs) N-O. That's not my take at all. So that's funny. Well, I don't think that marijuana stocks are a sector of a portfolio. And I think that, like we talked about earlier, there's so many more smarter people than me or you, Joe, that buying individual stocks is such a sucker's game for most people that I just can never get behind it. And and every time I try, personally, it blows up in my face ugly. It's like a Hamilton ticket. It just sounds like a really good idea. And then you never go to the show. No, I'm just kidding. But... Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not hot on them. I, 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 I don't know what else to say about that. Uh, I'm going to go the other direction. I do like them. And I think as more and more states open up that business, you're going to see big companies even more entrenched in that space. I mean, it's going to become a lot more competitive on one end, which means that's going to drive down some of the ridiculous margins that you see, right? As these businesses come up to scale, in other words, instead of just a place on the corner in Portland, Oregon, you're going to have a you know, 50, 100 outlet firm or, or, or whatever on the retail side. But then when it comes to the production side, those facilities get bigger and bigger and bigger and compete against each other more. So that'll do two things. I think it'll legitimize the industry more, but I think on the other side, as I mentioned, it'll also drive down drive down margin some. So is there opportunity? Yes. Do we know where it is exactly? No. Because even if you just do a quick search online, the very top thing I did when I just did a search just now said, watch out for these penny stocks because they're masquerading as marijuana stocks and they're not. <laughs> And they're, and they're just, they're, they're still, they're still get rich quick schemes. There's so many of them out there. So, so would I do this? Would I do this with, with the hull of your investing ship? No, but I've got a sandbox portfolio where I like to invest money in areas I'm interested in. Do I own some marijuana companies? Absolutely. 
I'm not going to go into those because of the fact that I don't think this is a good place for us to share individual stock recommendations. So I'm going to stay away from the whole individual position thing. But as a, as where the market's headed, I'll tell you what, if, if, if you put my feet to the fire OG and you said you have to invest in either cannabis stocks or cryptos, which one would you do? I would say cannabis stocks and not because of the between fa- those two. Yeah, I would too. Yeah. And not because of the fact, by the way, that I think it's better. I think, I think it's just a little more mature. I mean, my whole, there's some data, some companies are emerging as possible winners when it comes to crypto. I don't know who the winner is going to be. Well, the other thing that concerns me about this is just kind of the nature of the question you're talking about sandbox money, which makes me, assume that a lot of your, if not all of your financial goals are you're on track for outside of that. And what I heard him say earlier was, Hey, I just started investing four months ago. What else should I do? We talk about this from time to time that it's really, really, really exciting to do steps nine, 10 and 11, you know, in the pyramid, because those are the cool things. Like, yeah, this is, where's my sandbox go? Yeah, this is it's like, this is clearly, dude, you're still on like get to retirement. <laughs> This is not a place to begin your portfolio. Yeah. And so maybe I started investing four months ago and I'm saving 40% of my income and, you know, I've got a huge cash reserve already and I have no debt and all that sort of stuff. Okay, fine. You want to throw a few bucks, hit something off the wall, have fun doing it. The idea that you might be just getting started and you're like, yeah, cool. I got that lick. Now what else is there? That makes me a little concerned because my guess is, is that, if you just started, you're probably not checking all the boxes already. So just be careful with that. I totally agree. And I guess I'll just add this one thing. If you are going to do it, there's some ETFs, which, which cover that industry. And uh, yeah, maybe that's where to go. I don't know. Yeah. Instead of picking a winner, probably would still wouldn't start there. Mm-hmm. Would, would, would not start there. Thanks for the question, Matt. We're also finishing off the letters bag here. And uh, Craig has a question, says, I pulled the trigger, now completely debt-free, paid for home. I know this isn't the the uh, Dave in Tennessee show, but we should have like a cowbell thing or something when people do that, you know? I don't know. It's like, Or maybe every time somebody invests in a cannabis stock, we, we uh, ring a bell. <laughs> You puff the magic dragon. <laughs> we just, you just play the song, like in like in Meet the Fockers. Uh, congratulations, Craig! Paid off home completely debt free. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Craig says it's allowed me to start investing pretty aggressively, but I'm getting really divergent advice and perspectives depending on which podcast I listen to. And which finance expert I, I talked to. So thought it might be relevant for your listeners. Uh, question one, any reason not to max all I can in Roth investments if I can afford the taxes? I guess what he means by taxes is the fact that by not putting it in pre-tax, he's not getting a tax deduction. So the default plan is to continue to pay taxes as you normally would. Yeah, I sure. Roth. Okay. And he also might mean the Roth 401k. Maybe. Yeah, possibly. By the way, one thing that you want to remember, Craig, also is that to to take money out of your Roth, the money that you put in the Roth, the Roth's got to be open five years. 
So watch out for your watch out for your five year rule. So so I would just put this out there: if the goal's for less than five years, yes, there's a reason. Mm-hmm. Don't put it in a Roth. Could be yeah. number two. Do you recommend ESPP, which is employee stock purchase plans, at a discount as being viable in an investment portfolio? He says he plans to do both as ESPP and non-retirement investments, but opinions seem to vary greatly around ESPP at all due to single stock volatility, diversification, and risk. Well, all of that's true, but you're also getting probably a 15 or plus percent discount and uh, a little bit of a tax benefit, too, if you hold the shares long enough, two years, by the way. So assuming that your company is not a crappy company... I mean, that might be an issue. Well, well, and, and even so, I've seen people do this math, even having it as ordinary income during that first two years, getting mm-hmm. the free 10% return yeah, or 15% return like still. Yeah, 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 the, not yeah I, I don't know why you wouldn't. Yeah. I don't know why you wouldn't do that. I'll tell you one thing, one thing, Craig, that I used to recommend, and OG, I don't know if you do this, was a conveyor belt approach. We mm-hmm. would continue to buy the ESPP on one end and we're selling like number of shares on the other end, making sure that we get away from that single stock risk by keeping the percentage of the portfolio in a tightly controlled number. Yeah, I mean, as if you're starting out and you're going to put, you have $0 invested and the max you can put in your ESPP is usually 25000 a year. And at the end of the year, you've done 25000 Yes, you have a ton of diversification issues. If at the end of year two, you're at 50,000, still a lot of diversification issues. But then from that point forward, you'll start selling off $25,000 a year plus whatever gains there might have been and reinvesting that in something else. So yeah, the first couple of years, it's concentrated and it definitely is risky. But if all of a sudden you've got a million dollar portfolio and you've got $25,000 for the company stock, that's, you know, two and a half percent, you know, whatever. Craig says this. Would it be better to take the money that he's putting in the ESPP, about $700 per check, and invest that in a non-retirement mutual fund investment? Here's here's the way I would do it. Exactly, OG, what we're talking about. I keep the 700 going into the ESPP. Then every six months when you, or year, whenever your company gives you the shares, take the shares that have been around for two years, sell those, and diversify them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks for the question, Craig. You got a question for the show? Call the Haven Lifeline, stackybedjamins.com forward slash voicemail gets you there. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks to Matt and Craig for the questions today. Real quick, informal poll on Facebook. The yeas have it, 31 to 12, fried egg on cheeseburger. 31 disgusting people in our Facebook group. It's by a factor of darn near two to one. Mm. So... Yuck. Hey, uh, even though his Epicurean delight may not be what we wish it was, OG and his firm, pretty good at financial planning. And if you're looking for a financial planner in your corner, even though he has bad taste in food, uh, head to stackybitchments.com forward slash OG for more. I think we both know that I have pretty good taste in food. (laughs) Not the fried eggs. Who doesn't like cheeseburgers with fried eggs on them? I'll take the cheeseburger. All right, that's going to do it for today. Thanks to everybody, by the way, who's left a review of this podcast. This one's on Mom's Fridge today. Five stars, favorite podcast from Lappin EQ. Uh, if you ever want to sit around with friends judging Johnny Depp's spending habits while you're at work or doing the dishes or playing solitaire, well, this is the show for you. One of my favorite parts of the day is whenever I find time to put on headphones and descend into the basement 
haven't learned anything, but the $100 bills lying around my house have mysteriously begun to pile up. Easily my favorite podcast. Thank you to cast and crew for all the hard work that makes it happen. Every time there's an extra interesting episode, I want to send y'all a gold star. Thanks for that review. And if you've got time to tell people about the Stacky Benjamin show, I think that lets people know what they're getting into. All right, Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Sure thing, Joe, because I always know what the people want to hear. I'd be happy to tell them what they should have learned today. First, take some advice from Veronica Dagger. She gave us lots of great nuggets, but how about this one? Find advocates and mentors to help with your career. Other men and women have struggled with the same things you're going through now, and many are happy to help. All you got to do is ask. Mmm, now I'm thinking about nuggets. Second, that idea that fund managers underperform the index because they aren't smart? Yeah, it appears they aren't the problem. That guy next to you piling money into funds at the wrong time and taking them out at the wrong time, that dude's the issue. But the big lesson... This, uh, this impossible burger, it's, uh, it's fantastic. Let's have an impossible burger in every cradle and a baby in every hand. Or wait, reverse that, flip that over. Or, or maybe a, a dollar in every wallet and a what a burger in every mouth, if you like that sort of thing. I don't know, man, this presidential messaging thing is, is hard. Special thanks to Veronica Dagger. You'll find the link to her podcast, Secrets of Wealthy Women, wherever you're listening to this show. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and if you could only know what it really smells like down here. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Thanks also to everyone who's gotten behind my campaign by downloading my podcast, Doug's super hilarious joke of the week. Check out the show. No, I'm Yeah, it's a real show. Joe, you help produce it. Jeez, some people. Welcome to the after show. We wanted to catch you up on a guy that we've been following. Of course, he is walking America from the South end to the North end. We've got a, my dad shortwave, uh, Joe Jimenez joins us again, dude, you're back. 
Hey, Joe, how's it going? Nice to talk to you again. Well, I got to tell you, uh, since we talked to you last, you have scaled a mountain. <laughs> yeah, a few of those. Yeah, but tell me about northern uh, New Mexico, because, man, some of the pictures you sent me, one from the top of a mountain, the other one was just you uh, hiking with like some beautiful, it looked like flatland behind you. How did you like New Mexico? Let me tell you, man, New Mexico, I feel, is one of the most underrated states in the U.S. Um, one day, between 24 hours, we were in from the desert to four foot of snow on top of, I mean, I, I can't even explain. As a Florida boy, I'm not used to this snow, but uh, New Mexico has been amazing. Uh, I'm about 800 miles in, and I'm about to hit the Colorado border, so I can't speak highly enough about New Mexico. It's been awesome. What was the mountain that I saw you on Facebook scaling, and then uh, you did some video from the top? Oh, that's right. I'm, you, you're probably talking about Mount Taylor, yeah. and that's uh, on, on the Continental Divide Trail in New Mexico. That's the highest point, the highest point in New Mexico. So it was over eleven thousand feet, which there are higher mountains. But uh, I had a little bit of bad weather at the top, so the visibility was very low. I couldn't even see the trail after I got to the summit. So it was a little squirrely, but, you know, it's good Colorado training because we're about to hit the, the San Juans. And um, I think I got to start preparing myself for this mountaineering stuff. How often do you lose the trail? <laughs> how The better question is, how often am I actually on the trail? <laughs> uh, the thing about the CDT, it's, uh, it's different from the uh, last time we talked about the others briefly, the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail. And the Continental Divide Trail is more of a kind of choose your own adventure as in, it's not a very well-marked trail, and a lot of times you don't know whether you're on the trail or not. You kind of find a good, a good passageway. Sometimes there's a, it's not developed, which means there's not a lot of trail maintenance. So a lot of times there's down trees over the trail. You have to do a lot of bushwhacking. If you, you, know, if you could see my legs, they're all scratched up from just going into the bushes all the time and trying to make my way. So I do lose the trail quite often, but the point is, you know, as long as I'm heading due north, uh, I think uh, everything's all right. How are your legs doing and your feet? Surprisingly, my feet are doing well. It's not the case for most of the hikers, but I, I'm, I don't know, man. I, one of my skills is that um, my feet um, can take a lot of beating and still be okay. So actually, I'm in Chamanun, Mexico now, and I actually just picked up new shoes because my pair that I had that I hiked this whole time with are trashed. Um, but luckily, my feet are good. So um, yeah, no complaints there. I feel fresh. So I'm taking a some time off to give my feet some rest. I'm taking about three days off, mostly due to the bad weather, but it's, I could probably use it for my, you know, foot repair. But in general, I feel great. No blisters. Um, I haven't lost any toenails yet, so no complaints. Do you schedule that these breaks? I mean, do do you have this kind of built into the plan or is this going to extend the, the trek a little bit longer? Not really. You know, people ask me that all the time. Um, one of the first questions is when are you going to finish? How long is it going to take you? And, it sounds kind of rude when we, when I respond that you just, I don't know, because with a journey this long, there's so many unknowns and, you know, like we didn't anticipate this weather. So, you know, I just kind of heard it through the grapevine that we we're going to have four days of heavy snow and rain and it, it was just going to be pretty nasty. So, you know, it's one of the, sometimes it's just the case. You can't, I have the tendency to be a little hard headed and say, no, I don't want to waste any time. I got to stay out there on the trail and keep going. But a lot of times, you know, it's 
you just got to be smart, you know, because you're out there in the wilderness. And if you get into a squirrely situation and, you know, you're out there and pretty far from a road and you can't really get help, you know. So that's why, you know, it's it doesn't really back myself up that much. And when you're talking, we're we're doing roughly 25 to 30 miles a day. And, and then, you know, if, if there's some good terrain, I could cover 40 miles a day, which is pretty big. But I could always make up the time is what you know, what I'm trying to say. So yeah, there's, I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow. I don't know what I'm doing in a week. And I just, yeah, just like I said, just trying to make it to Canada. (laughs) That's uh, well, two things for you. Number one is in our Facebook group. And if people want to join the Facebook group, it's, uh, it's facebook.com. Excuse me. I just go to stackybenjamins.com forward slash basement. And that'll give you the, cause it's kind of a long URL, but people, people there, Joe were sharing with us that, on the Continental Divide Trail, they just tagged a big, huge grizzly, uh, just monster grizzly sure. that, that, that they found right on That's the trail. <laughs> yeah. Do you worry about uh, seeing bears or do you see much wildlife? Well, in the South, uh, bears are not much of an issue. Uh, the largest wildlife we're seeing is elk, and we are seeing a ton of them. Grizzlies are going to be a concern further north when we get into Wyoming and Montana, that area it's going to be prime grizzly bear season. So yes, we'll be walking right through there (laughs) um, at exactly the time. If you want to spot a lot of grizzlies, but um, like I said, at at this point, it's not so much concern. I do have bear bag. uh, um, I'm sorry, a bear hang kit. I don't eat where I camp. And the thing about that is uh, since I'm not camping in established campgrounds or uh, heavy human trafficked areas, the bears are not accustomed to, you know, looking for food or looking for, you know, they're not, they're not used to that. So I usually eat about five miles before camp and then I walk, you know, a couple more hours and then I set up camp, store my food far from my tent site. That way there's no major smells, but in the South, I've been using my food bag as a pillow bag, (laughs) you know, it's just, yeah, there's different concerns with different areas. Now my biggest concern to be honest is going to be the snow. It's not so much the wildlife and maybe some avalanche risks when I get into the high mountains of Colorado. Um, but the, yeah, the risks just change as, as, uh, as we go North. The other thing people have been asking is, uh, if you'd like to have some company along the trail, do you have people that come and hike with you a little bit? Sure. Well, the way the trail works is we, us hikers, we usually start alone because it's really hard to start the trail with someone who is your same pace, who you get along with, like me and you can be best friends, right? In real life. But on the trail, you might just, be a slow drag in the mornings and I can't take it or, you know, we might annoy each other. So usually the way it works is we'll start alone us hikers. And then we meet somebody who's kind of compatible. And I've been very fortunate to meet a a great, a great guy who is very experienced. uh, And he's hiked the Appalachian trail and the Pacific crest trail. And I met him after two weeks and we've been together ever since. So we've been hiking for roughly uh, almost a month together. And uh, we kind of work as a team. My skills, offset his skills and vice versa. So during the day, we usually hike alone and then we'll camp together, you know, Um, because to be honest, it's really hard to find somebody who's your same pace and that you can hike together with. It's it's actually not that easy. So I'm the slower one admittedly. So, and he's quite a fast hiker. So I'll, I'll just be lagging behind, but I know he's just ahead and and it's good to have that support system just in case, you know, Um, one day I, I was moving really slow in the snow and um, I didn't get to camp till about 8 p.m. And he had already been there for several hours and he was a bit worried about me. So, you know, that's it's a cool thing to have that support. So, yes, to answer your question, it's 
I do get, I mean, it gets a little lonely, but, um, but when you, when you decide to hike the continental divide, you know, that going in that you're going to be spending a lot of time alone. Sure. If you want more of a social trail, the Appalachian trail is the place to be. Yeah. That's, that's, that's so funny. You say that a more social trail, which it seems like <laughs> when you did the Appalachian trail, did you see people all the time? Sure. Yeah. When I did, I did it back in 2012. There was approximately 2,000 people hiking it around there. Now it's estimated around 6,000 people attempting the through hike. So, and the, the AT is definitely more developed. There's more shelters. There's actually privies, which not to be too specific, but it's toilets along the whole entire trail. There's established. All the towns are way, way more established. There's more hostels. There's more of a trail culture. On um, the CDT. Going northbound, there's estimated less than 400 people attempting, and that's spread out. So I've probably only, hiking-wise, I've probably only seen maybe 10 other hikers this whole trip since uh, April 3rd. Holy cow. Um, yeah, so I've, I, it's just been me and another guy. I call him Mary Poppins because he, he carries an umbrella, <laughs> and he's always chat, he's always chatting, and he hiked the Pacific Crest Trail in a skirt because he had chafing issues. So I, uh, so I'm sure you get trail names and I call them Mary Poppins, but it's just been me and Mary Poppins ever since. So yeah, if you, you know, that's the thing is if you find someone you don't like, man, you, you either got to be a very fast hiker or <laughs> you hope that they're very fast so you don't see them again. But luckily we get along quite well, but yeah, man, it's, it's, there's not that many people out here. <laughs> Do you call him Mary Poppins to his face? Oh yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I have variations. It's either M pop popsicle. Mm, pop or i sometimes i just i get lazy i just call him mary and it's a 38 year old french dude with a strong voice (laughs) the last thing you think about is mary poppins when you take a look at this guy (laughs) massive quads very in shape ultra runner and and yeah i'm calling him mary and every time i forget that when i'm in town and i'm yelling across the parking lot hey mary come over here and people are looking like that guy's name is mary (laughs) yeah. <laughs> and he, yeah, he answers to it. I, yeah. It's funny. That's, that's the way a trail works. We all get trail names and uh, yeah, he's married to me. <laughs> that's that is awesome. Uh, last question I have for you before we let you go. Cause I'm sure you've got other stuff you've got to do. Uh, the podcast, we haven't had an episode recently. Uh, what's going on there? I know. Yeah, man. I, I, I gotta, actually I'm recording an episode right now. So I have at least three in the chamber that I've already recorded and um, I'm having some help back at home with that. But on the trail, it's hard to coordinate that stuff. Um, yeah. I'm working on it. We should have an episode released very soon. I'm hoping that uh, within this week, we'll have it out. But actually, today I'm recording another episode with uh, a nice young couple that I'm staying at their hotel with right now. And they're they're young couple who own a hotel, and they're in the fire movement, and they don't even know that they are. So that's very interesting. I'm going to want to have a conversation with them and see their take on their unconventional lifestyle. And, and hopefully that'll be released soon. That is awesome, man. Well, good luck with the next couple of weeks and we'll catch up with you in Colorado. I hope so. Hopefully I'll make it through some of those uh, crazy mountains. Uh, I'll hopefully I'll cross some 14ers, but uh, yeah, like I said, I, I got my snowshoes and my ice axe and I'm going to be doing some mountaineering. So hopefully you'll see me on the other side. You'll see a lot more snow picks. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout-outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend OG, who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. 
Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.